It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a festive sack of stories from the week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on your pre-Christmas menu, a Democrat is senator in Alabama. How did that happen? Hella Torning-Schmidt, former Prime Minister of Denmark, on the top three trouble spots facing the world in 2018. And uh, the importance of, um, you know, hesitating in good conversation. But first, sharp power, the new face of Chinese influence, was our cover line this week. While much Western media attention has been focused on how Russia has meddled in foreign politics, it's not the only culprit. China is manipulating decision-makers in Western democracies. Our cover leader argued that the best defence against subversion is to let the daylight in. On December 5th, allegations that China has been interfering in Australian politics, universities and publishing led the government to propose new laws to tackle unprecedented and increasingly sophisticated foreign efforts to influence lawmakers. On December 10th, Germany accused China of trying to groom politicians and bureaucrats. And on December 13th, Congress held hearings on China's growing influence. It's hard to define this tactic, but it now has a name, sharp power. Soft power harnesses the allure of culture and values to add to a country's strength. Sharp power helps authoritarian regimes coerce and manipulate opinion abroad. And it's been wielded in ways that make it particularly hard to parry. In Australia and New Zealand, Chinese money is alleged to have bought influence in politics. This week's complaint from German intelligence said that China was using the LinkedIn business network to ensnare politicians and government officials. Foreign researchers may lose access to Chinese archives. Policymakers may find that China experts in their own countries are too ill-informed to help them. The economy is so big that businesses often dance to China's tune without being told to. Where once China's focus lay at home, the interests of its power brokers have turned to influencing events outside its borders, and that has consequences. Some 10 million Chinese have moved abroad since 1978. Chinese companies are investing in rich countries, including in resources, strategic infrastructure and farmland. Its government frets that its poor image abroad will do it harm. And as the rising superpower, China has an appetite to shape the rules of global engagement, rules created largely by America and Western Europe. The real aim for the Middle Kingdom is elbowing its way to more space at the top. To ensure China's rise is peaceful, the West needs to make room for China's ambition. But that does not mean anything goes. Open societies ignore China's sharp power at their peril. To find out how the West can blunt China's sharp power without hurting itself, pick up a copy of this week's edition of The Economist. Or, as ever, you can find us online at economist.com. Now, last week saw a dramatic challenge to the powers that be, or powers that were, in America's Deep South. For the first time in 25 years, Alabama has a Democratic senator. 
On Tuesday night, Doug Jones beat Roy Moore by a narrow but clear margin of 1.5%. We spoke to Mr Jones in November, when he was still behind in the polls but gaining ground. In Washington, D.C. right now, nothing's getting done. And it's not getting done in part because of the parties just fighting and will not try to find common ground. I hope that a voice like mine, a Democratic voice from the South, can be able to reach across that aisle and to find that middle ground. Doug Jones was struck dumb by the result. Well, almost. I gotta tell you, I think that I have been waiting all my life and now I just don't know what the hell to say. Was it a one-time fling for the heart of Dixie? Our Washington correspondent, John Fassman, was in Alabama in the run-up to the vote. So what was the feeling on the ground? The mood was optimistic. Maybe for the first time in a generation, they had a chance to elect a Democrat in the state of Alabama. And it's funny, it, it reminded me a bit of the 2016 presidential campaign where, you know, the polls told you that, that one result was possible, you know, that, that, that Moore was the likely candidate to win in, in 2016, that Hillary was the likely candidate to win. But the enthusiasm shown for the opponent in both cases was far greater than the enthusiasm shown for the eventual winner. Roy Moore thought it was a safe Republican bet, and Republicans generally thought that this was a safe seat because it it had been for so long. Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton last year by 28 points. The last time Alabama elected a, a Democratic senator was 1992, and he almost immediately switched parties. The two candidates also ran very different campaigns. Uh, Jones was focused on what he called kitchen table issues, health care, education, and business. Our health care is such a fundamental issue for us. We want people to talk to each other and try to get something done. And Moore really had no policy preferences to speak of that I could discern. I mean, he hated abortion and gay marriage, but he talked about his own, his own piety more than any, anything else. Today, we no longer recognize the universal truth that God is the author of our life and liberty. Abortion, sodomy, and materialism have taken the place of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, he painted the picture of a candidate who is, who is unstable and divisive, and Jones played on the, the fears that the business community had of making Roy Moore the face of Alabama. And so I think that, that's why you got a lot of these suburban voters who, who turned away from Moore. <laughs> I spoke with Darren Moten, who is a political science professor at Alabama State, and he really sort of shed some light on the, on the divided nature of the Alabama electorate. President Trump said that um, we don't need another um, um, liberal um, in the United States Senate. Well, you know, from my point of view, we don't need someone in the United States Senate who's only going to be concerned about 30% of the populace of our state. One of the things that really bothers me is the way citizens in our state have been caricatured on the national media, that supporters of Judge Moore are, are these uh, emotional um, individuals who, who basically vote based on emotion and not based on reason. And I think those of us um, who are not supporters of of, of Roy Moore um, are going to be sort of stigmatized. When you look at the results and try to figure out whether Doug Jones won because he, because Alabama Democrats came out or because Roy Moore alienated Republicans, it's very hard to untangle those two strands. I think Jones won, first of all, because his campaign did a great job of 
energizing and motivating African-American and young voters who came out in huge numbers for him. And I think Roy Moore's divisive rhetoric really turned off more people than it than it turned on this time. He sort of there's an outer limit to that sort of politics it seems. I had a great conversation with a man named Jerry McDonald who is a retiree from Calera, which is a, a small but growing exurb of Birmingham, about how resentment and identity politics for him have kept him a Democrat in Alabama. What has kept me a Democrat in the South? The ugly hate politics, I guess you would say, of the, um, would it be the conservative agenda, which is mostly enveloped or um, housed itself in the Republican Party. I, I just couldn't buy the line that uh, resentment or over skin color or anything else like that, you know, religion, whatever, uh, could have anything to do with progress or a way forward. When you find yourself falling into that, possibly falling into that state of mind, it would just occur to me that, you know, it, it's really dark and it's unending. I think it's too early to know whether this pretends a real change in direction. Um, I think that Doug Jones will have a very hard time winning in three years when uh, assuming Republicans nominate a non-Roy Moore to challenge him. I think it, it would, it'll be hard for him to win. But I also think you saw the beginnings of, of Democrats building a party infrastructure in a state where they had let it wither. John Fassman there on the political drama of Alabama. And you can find out more about that and the broader context in our United States section. If the repercussions of Donald Trump's presidency dominated the back end of 2017, we're already anticipating what might be on our minds next year. A special series of podcasts looks ahead to the world in 2018. The first episode, published on Friday, faced up to the greatest threats to come. I spoke to Helle Torning-Schmidt, former Prime Minister of Denmark, now CEO of Save the Children International. For her, the top priority is still the vast numbers of people displaced by war. In 2018, I'm afraid we will see uh, more suffering. We will see suffering in Yemen, which is probably the biggest humanitarian uh, disaster right now. We have more than 100 children dying every day of diseases that we should have and could prevent. Of course, we also have uh, the children of Syria who are still suffering. The last group of people that I want to draw our attention to also in 18 is um, the Rohingya people. There are 600,000 of those people. More than half of them are children. And when you go to the camp in Bangladesh, you see that this is truly a children's emergency and we need to step up to do more. And you can hear more about what's coming up in 2018 by subscribing to Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts or your preferred audio app. And if you feel you might need some soothing after all these global headaches, we have some poetry to guide you through the year ahead too. And we're thrilled to say that Economist Radio has made the list of the top 20 most downloaded podcasts from Apple's iTunes in the UK. So thanks for listening, Blighty, and the rest of you do keep up. Now, last Thursday's episode of The Economist Asks was the final part of our delve into how creativity works and how we might get better at it ourselves. 
With Lane Green from our culture section as my co-host, I was able to escape harsh reality for a rare digital beauty. OK, Lane, time to put your musical knowledge to the test. Who's the composer? Sounds a bit like Bach to me in a way. Nope. Uh, Beethoven? Please. OK. Um, Handel? No, and clearly you couldn't spot the feminine overtones in that piece because it's by the world-renowned composer Emily Howell. I do believe the machines can be creative, and that's uh, very important. OK, you got us. That's the voice of Emily Howell, or rather the voice of her creator, David Cope. You guessed it, Emily Howell is in fact a computer programme. For a crash course in how to get your imaginative juices flowing, both episodes of Creativity Explained are available to listen to in full online. But uh, isn't it maddening when you're talking about something really important and you just can't stop yourself uh, umming and aahing? Well, this week, Johnson, our language columnist, got to grips with vocal punctuation. It turns out that mm might mean that you're uh, actually rather good at conversation. Conversation, it turns out, is a finely tuned machine, as Nick Enfield, a linguist at the University of Sydney, suggests in How We Talk. Humans mostly follow a rule called no gap, no overlap, reacting to the end of a conversational turn by beginning their own in about 200 milliseconds, about the time it takes a sprinter to respond to the starting gun. But we can't all be Usain Bolt, so how do you avoid being a conversational ran? That requires a fine attention to the cues signalling the end of a turn, such as a lengthening of syllables and a drop in pitch. Answering quickly moves the conversation along. In general, two people speaking try to help each other. And that's where the ums come in. Uh and um signal to the other speaker that a turn is not quite finished, that the speaker is planning something more. This makes sense only in the light of the split-second timing with which speakers take turns, like um and uh, humble mm-hmm and uh-huh are critical too. Listeners use them to show they have understood the speaker and are sympathetic. And the language of huh is apparently universal, and not just restricted to our teenagers. Cicero wrote a set of rules of conversation which included taking turns and not going on too long. His rules have been rediscovered in culture after culture. They may be part of human beings' shared social instincts, a product of evolution. So next time you find yourself in conversation with a bulldozer or a boar, you might feel sorry for them rather than for yourself. They are lacking a basic human skill. So before I go on for too long, that's the end of the show. But please continue the conversation by writing to us at radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio with your favourite verbal delaying tactic or the one that drives you mad. And remember, you can find the articles and podcasts from this week's programme online. We have lots more specials for you next week. And if Christmas is your thing, a very merry one. In London, this is The Economist. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.